Imagine for a moment that you are God and you are bringing your son into the world to save the world and to fulfill your promises. So you're bringing your son into the world to become a human being. Who is going to make a good mother for your son? What kind of a person do you look for? Have you ever thought about that? Well, here's what God did. He looked for a servant of God. Because that son is going to be the servant promised in Isaiah 42 and elsewhere. The servant of servants. You look for a humble person who thinks more about others than about herself because that's who that son is. Who expresses the exact character of God in that he thinks about others more than himself. Now that person who is a servant and who is humble does not exist naturally. So forget looking for a needle in the haystack. The needle is not there. And what God did was to work supernaturally to make a woman be the right person for her calling. He gave Mary great grace. That's what we're looking at this morning. We're in Luke chapter 1, reading from verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. That's a preamble to what is known as the Annunciation. And we're told here the time and the place and the circumstances. The sixth month refers to the pregnancy of Elizabeth. And Gabriel confirms this in verse 36. He says, this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. So in God's timeline, this is six months after announcing this to Zacharias. And God is sending this angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth in Galilee, to speak to a betrothed virgin. And what we notice about that is that engagement at this time was binding and as sacred as marriage itself. This engagement could only be broken by divorce. 
any breach of that betrothal would be considered adultery. They're considered as married, though they are not, but they are protected in a relationship in which they can't mess around with each other or with anybody else. And that would last up to maybe a year before the actual marriage ceremony. So here, in this place, Mary is protected against any possibility of impropriety. No man could have touched her. Now, it also says about her betrothed, Joseph, that he's of the house of David. This is important because of the promise, the covenant that God made with David, that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Now, that legal right to the throne, if you will, is inherited from Joseph because he's one of David's descendants. But this also implies that Mary herself is descended from David for this reason. God says it will be one of your descendants. And although Joseph is of that family, he is not the father, cannot be the father. Therefore, Mary is the one who provides the humanity and the link to David. So from this and from other parts of Scripture, we infer that Mary herself is a descendant of David. And so now with these details in place, we have the announcement of Gabriel in verse 28. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The announcement. He greets her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, the Roman Catholic Church prefer the rendering, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And that gives an impression that Mary is of herself full of grace that she then bestows upon others. But that's a wrong understanding of what the angel said. Because this word that is translated 
highly favored one is what is called in grammar a perfect participle passive. And it's not referring to what she has. It's referring to what has been given to her. It means that she has been highly favored or endowed with grace by God. She's not the source of that grace. The angel is saying, God has given you great grace. Now, the angel appearing like this is surprising. We don't have angels appear to us every day. And so she's perplexed and she's pondering, what does this mean? And you want to notice this. This is her characteristic, instinctive response. She begins mulling it over in her mind. And you do this to grasp the significance. You think about it. And this is what she does. And we'll look at this more in a minute. So the angel announces this. And you know, it's not to get Mary's approval. It's called the Annunciation, I suppose. But it announces the decree of God. God is telling Mary what's going to happen. Do you get that? He's not looking for her handshake. Yeah, we'll do this together. He's just saying, this is what's going to happen. And he emphasizes that she has found favor with God. That means he has accepted her. He has received her willingly. And he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. That is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Joshua. That's what we have in our Old Testament. In Hebrew, it would be Yeshua. And the name means Yahweh is salvation. That's assuming that we have the correct pronunciation of the four letters that make up the name of God. Yahweh is salvation. And the angel says, he will be great. Remember the definition of greatness. That it's not about how many people that you can compel to say you are great. And how you make yourself great by attaining and achieving and rising above and compelling obedience and then raising monuments to yourself that will last thousands of years. And they will say, oh, Rob, the great. But it's about thinking of others and serving them. This 
will to power, rise to the top, compel greatness. You know, that's what the devil does. God doesn't do that. God thinks about others, and he says that real greatness is benefiting others, making their lives better. And the reason that the Son is being born into this world is to serve God completely and utterly, fulfilling all of his will, which refers to things written down centuries ago and even millennia before. And this coming son is going to fulfill that. Do God's will here. And again and again and again. Completely satisfying what God wants to do. And in so doing, he will serve the most number of people ever. And if you want to think about this for a minute... He's also serving the angels because they're watching, because they're learning. It's amazing to think about this, that this one person is going to benefit the most people ever in creation. That's why he's great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And there's, there's a real contrast here. Here's this servant, the one who's going to go the lowest, the one who's going to put everybody else before him. But then this, this person who is the last and the least is also going to be made the highest, the first, the most exalted, to where every created being in the universe will kneel and confess that this person is the Most High, that this is what it means to be God, to be the benefiter of everyone. That's who this person is. The lowest, the highest, the first, and the last. And then the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. This is the covenant that God made with David, that of your descendants, one will sit on the throne over Israel forever. Now I have some commentaries on Luke from the 1800s. This is before Israel is a nation. And they're saying, watch out. There has to be a nation Israel for this to happen. And at the time they're writing this, this is impossible. Absolutely impossible. Fast forward a century or two, and there is the nation of Israel. And so... This has to happen. There is going to be the throne of David and one sitting upon it who will rule forever. And not only 
the nation Israel, but the Gentiles, and everybody, and anything. He is the king. So that's the Annunciation. And then Mary responds twice to the angel. Look at verse 34. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now her first response is to ask, how is this going to happen? It's not like Zacharias. And Gabriel says, you know, your prayer is heard. You're going to have a son. He says, in effect, really? And he means this is not going to happen. It's impossible. You're too late. It was a response of unbelief. That's what the angel says. That's good enough for me. This is different. Because she's a virgin. And she's in a protected relationship. So, knowing how this stuff works, she is understandably perplexed. How is this going to work? And the angel says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And, you know, I think I've taught this passage several times in Christmas, and it sort of feels like Christmas now, doesn't it? In July. But this is the first time that I ever ran down this word overshadow, because it's intriguing, isn't it? Why this particular word overshadow? So, as I was chasing this word down in various lexicons, <coughs> it's okay, we'll make it. I can do this. This particular word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And it's in Exodus 40, verse 34. I'll read it to you. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so you can see in your mind's eye this cloud which God made the visible sense of his presence 
coming over and overshadowing this tabernacle, a tent, which would be the representation of his living among his people. And then his glory so fills his own tent that nobody could go in there because his glory was there in that tent. Now, you know what a tent is, right? It's skins stretched over poles that is a temporary place to live. And one of the interesting ideas in this is that that's what our bodies are. Basically, they're skins stretched over poles. And this is the language that is used in John chapter 1, where it says literally, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Isn't that an interesting choice of words? He lived in a set of skins stretched over poles, a temporary dwelling. And God is saying to Mary, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be overshadowed by the presence of God and the glory of God is going to fill your tabernacle. And therefore that holy thing is going to be the Son of God. Now, this is a miracle. This is not an ordinary, natural, biological procedure. And there are some people who are derogatory and say that that means God is having sex with Mary. And that's blasphemous. And you know, Christians agree with that. It would be blasphemous if that's what the text was saying. But the text is not saying that. It's going out of its way to say this is a miracle. This is not the usual thing. It's never happened before. It will never happen again. Now, if anybody wants to be willfully ignorant, then they have to deal with God. I know nobody here has that problem. But there are some people who go around and kind of say, well, that's blasphemous. You don't have to accept that because you can agree. You know what? That is blasphemous. It's even blasphemous to suggest that. This is a miracle. Now, the angel goes on to say that even your relative Elizabeth is in her sixth month. For... With God, nothing will be impossible. Now, did you know that the most exact translation of this verse is in the New International Version of the Bible? And I know that in some circles it's fashionable to poo-poo the NIV and call it the not very inspired version. But it turns out the most exact 
translation is in that Bible. So be nice to the translations, okay? And that exact translation is, no word from God will ever fail. Now that's important. Because see, Gabriel told Zacharias, you will have a son. And that word was fulfilled because it was the word of God. It is the same situation here. The angel says, this is going to happen. And no word of God is ever going to fail. He's assuring her, this is going to happen. And then Mary responds the second time. After asking, how's this going to happen? She responds, behold, the maid servant of the Lord. Now, in the original language, it just means slave. And some translations soften that and even say bond slave. But you can come out and say slave. Now, the angel hasn't gotten into a lot of detail here. He hasn't talked about metaphysics or what's possible. He just says, this is going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And without much more than that, she says, okay. And she accepts and she submits completely. And again, this is important because it's who she is. Behold the bondservant of the Lord. Whatever God wants, here I am. And she embraces it because she sees herself first and foremost as a slave of the Lord. Now, you know, Mary's submission and her happiness comes from receiving God's grace. And he gave her great grace. That's what it says in the text. He made her a woman who is completely submitted to doing the will of God, whatever that turns out to be. And as she accepted what God gave, she shared in God's goodness. So what kind of grace did God give Mary? And I see at least two things. The first is he gave her a heart to ponder and meditate. Because again, this is characteristic of Mary. Here and in chapter 2, we have altogether three incidents covering 12 years that refer to Mary treasuring these things in her heart and pondering them. And she kept meditating on them. And you do this to grasp the significance. And it's not just a one-time thing. It's something you think about. And as you examine it from different aspects, you learn and you better understand and you grasp because these things are huge. She is going to be the mother of the Messiah? 
there's plenty to think about right there. This is going to be a miracle? This is while I'm still engaged? Here's one thing to think about. What is Joseph going to think? Here's another thing to think about. What is anybody going to think about this? Do I need to talk about this? Probably it's a good idea if I don't. It isn't going to help anything. I'm sure that somehow Mary had access to the scriptures and that she meditated on them. And the reason I'm sure of that is because of what we're going to look at next week, what is called the Magnificat. That is, Mary exalting the Lord. And there's so much scripture in there. It did not come from just a blinding flash of being filled with the Spirit. This is the result of one's life meditating. And again, meditating enables you to better understand what you're going through and your experience with God. And in meditating, especially in the Bible, you're thinking about the Word of God that is living and active. In John, Jesus says, the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. You know, they're just, they're not just words on a page. And you know, the Holy Spirit is right there to give understanding and help. And you can call out to him and say, you know, I don't get this. Teach me. He's the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's Isaiah chapter 11. Imagine, here is the very spirit of God who can give these things so that we can know God. Now, Mary learned to do this at a very early age. That's the grace that God gave her. And I think that meditation was probably encouraged by another grace that God gave her. Only I don't know if we would see this as grace. Because... God gave Mary difficulties growing up. And God used those difficulties to humble Mary greatly and make her dependent on him. And I can only discern one of these difficulties, but you can imagine a host. That is poverty. It's likely that Mary grew up not having much in the way of things. That she didn't get all of her needs met as a kid. It could be that she didn't get as much food as she wanted. It may be that her parents could not provide for her in the way they wanted to. 
And it didn't seem to change much when she married Joseph. Because at least on the beginning, we know that they were living at a very low economic level. Barely making ends meet. When Mary delivers Jesus, and there's a time of purification that has to elapse, And then she has to offer sacrifices according to what it says in Leviticus 12. And what we note there is that she offers the absolute minimum. And it says, but if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Now, you can imagine... They would do all that they could for the Messiah who has been born. Miraculous things have happened by this time. Can they afford a lamb? And they have to show up with a couple of pigeons. How does that make you feel? I wish I could do more. But this is all I can do. See, it's, it means the economy is really low here. Now, you learn something when you don't have everything you could wish. And that is, you depend on God to provide for you. And this is a discipline. And you might find that you could want all kinds of things and even think, I need these things. And then you find out later, well, you know... I've lived this long without it, and I'm still alive. I must not need that thing that I think I must have. I can imagine Mary being a normal person and wishing she had this, wishing she had that, but not getting it. And that would make you think, I wonder why this is. Why does she get to have that and I don't? Why are we living like this? Why does God not hear our prayers? So you can ask all sorts of questions and now be pondering in your mind, how does this work? How does God work? And, you know, you learn something about God if you're depending on him. And that is, God does supply. He does not supply everything the way you think he ought to. You get used to that one. You say, hey, I ordered a dozen of these things. And then you have to stop yourself and say, okay, but I'm still alive, aren't I? And you don't stay alive by accident. And so here is God providing, and you can see how God is providing, and you realize God does answer the prayer of the afflicted and the needy. And I am the proof. And you become thankful because it's not smart to complain against God.
That's one of the things you find out in Scripture. That doesn't go over very well at all. And see, through this process, you learn humility. And you realize, you know what? God is really good. And I don't get everything that I want, but God knows. And he knows what I need, and he gives me what I need. And you know, I'm okay with that. And you quit asking why. Because God doesn't explain, does he? He doesn't sit down and take your hand and say, well, there, dear, there, dear. Um, it's part of my plan. And you know, it's so big it wouldn't fit into your little pinhead. So you're not going to understand this anyway. But here's how it works. It's like taxes. See, it's here on Schedule C. And then it goes over here to Form 2555. And you're going, yeah, but why? Well, sweetheart, I'm not going to explain it to you. Have you ever had God explain things to you? So you go, well, okay. That makes sense to me. I guess you can keep on going with that. That's reasonable. Carry on. Manicotti, the one prayer that God does not answer directly is why. Why did you make me like this? Why am I going through this? So you learn something. This is like being a parent. Your kid asks, why? The best response is to say, because God. And it just gets right to it. Don't have to go 14 rounds with a little squirt who can't imagine it anyway. Because God. And God doesn't have to explain himself because you know what? He already has. And it's there in Scripture. And he explains, I will hear the voice of the poor and the afflicted when they cry. And that's what you need to know. And what you find out is, that's true. That is true. Now, a mind that ponders comes to a conclusion about difficulty. It's best to trust in the Lord and to rest in Him and to submit myself to Him because He knows best. And I don't understand His ways past this. He is gracious and merciful, and I am His servant. I am his slave, and I submit myself to whatever he wants, and that's okay with me. You know, it's better that I get the Lord than I get any of this little stuff that I thought was so important, and I realize I can live without it, but I cannot live without God. It's better for me to trust in God without understanding because answers don't help. But God helps. So I don't have to understand everything to approve God. I'm okay with trusting Him. He's faithful. 
So by this time in her life, Mary has endured hardship. And she's also been humbled and she knows God's goodness. And when God comes to her and says, this is going to happen, then she has received so much grace already from God that she's humble and ready to obey. She is happy to be the bond slave of the Lord. And what strikes me about this is this is amazingly mature to have this attitude at such an early age. Because when I think of people that call themselves bond slaves in the Bible, the first thought I had was Paul, the apostle. And he begins Romans, Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That's a mature attitude that you come to after decades of serving God and learning and teaching and planning churches and being a missionary. And finally you come to this point, I am the bond servant of the Lord. That's a good attitude. And then you know the other apostles call themselves that. James begins his epistle the same way. James, a bond servant of the Lord. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And all the apostles act that way, even if they don't start their epistles that way. They all have that same mindset. I am a bond slave of Jesus Christ. But then you go back into the Old Testament. You use the Hebrew word, Ebed, and that is easily translatable as slave. You could call servant, you could call it that, and I'm not pronouncing it right, but you might as well say slave. Abraham was the servant of God, so was Moses, so was David. And you realize all these men of God were content to be the slave of God. Now, how old is Mary at this point? Fourteen? Sixteen? Twenty at the outside? Can you imagine a 14-year-old girl with this kind of attitude? An angel appears, says you're going to have the Son of God, and she goes, Behold your bond slave. Wow. See, that's amazing. But that's because God has prepared her and given her great grace, which she has received. And because she's received it, she submits. She depends on him, not her own understanding, and she seeks to grow in her understanding and in her grasp of God. So here's the point. The point of receiving Jesus 
is to present yourself to God as a bond slave. Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, when you present yourself to God, that is acceptable to him, just like Mary was accepted by him. And this is how you respond to God because of the grace that you've already received. And again, if you have received Jesus, it's because, first of all, he humbled you with affliction and difficulty. And you came to that point where you said, you know what? I am the slave of sin. I am a sinner. I need Jesus to save me. And you asked him to, and he did. You received that grace of difficulty, and then you received that grace of God, the freeing, the cleansing, the regeneration and being born again. And so this is how you respond to God. You say, okay, behold your bond slave. But I notice something else, at least in me, probably not you. But I'm not a very good bond slave. I experience resistance to this whole idea of bond slavery because... Let's just be honest. I don't want to be anybody's slave. I want to be free. And I find myself outvoting the Trinity all by myself. And you know, I know that it's, it never works out. It's not good. But I have to deal with this sin and rebellion that I don't want to submit to God. Isn't that a weird thing? Behold your bondservant. Actually, not really. And you have to deal with this fact that I am a lousy bondservant of God. Well, what do you do when you're in a spot like that? Behold, the crummy bondslave of the Lord. Here's the biblical response. You receive more grace. James chapter 4, this is what he says. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. But he gives more grace. Isn't this interesting? And you think, well, I received a bunch of grace, and I didn't actually do that good with it. 
And God says, well, receive more then. And you go, oh, yeah? You think that's going to help? And God goes, well, yeah, that's going to help. Now, I've had one of the toughest weeks I've had in a long time where I am thoroughly unimpressed with my bond slavery before God. And it's been really hard. This is my what did God do right this week, okay? And I've been reading Isaiah at night. And the Lord has been giving me grace. Here's what it sounds like. For example, Isaiah 46. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth, and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same, and even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. So he's saying, you know, I've always carried you, and I'm still going to carry you. How about Isaiah 49? But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? And have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. How about Isaiah 54? O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, Behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Behold, I will make your battlements of rubies, and your gates of crystal, and your entire wall of precious stones. All your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. Now, you know what my honest reaction to that is? That is too good to be true. I am not worthy of that. I haven't done enough for that. Can you really do that to me because I'm such a jerk? And the answer is, of course. Absolutely. Because this isn't about how good I am. It's about how good God is. And you know, when you read it in the Bible and it's too good to be true, that means it's grace. We have come to the definition of grace. It's got to be in the Bible, not in a four-color brochure somewhere. It's got to be the Bible. And you read that and you go, that's too good. That's grace. So, did you know that you are highly favored just like the Virgin Mary? Because the Bible says so. 
That word used of Mary is used in only one other place in the whole New Testament. And it's Ephesians 1, verse 6, which says, picking it up in the middle of a sentence, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And freely bestowed is the same word as highly favored. God has bestowed great grace upon you. So this highly favored applies only to Mary and to everybody in Christ. Is that not amazing? And this is the point. When you realize God's goodness toward you, then you can submit to being a bond slave and be happy about it. Then you go, okay, if you love me that much, I'm good with that. I'm yours. Here I am. Make of me what you want and use me any way that you want. And you find that you're not worried anymore about, well, what does everybody think about me? You know, how am I doing? The only thing that matters is what does God think? What does God think? Now, that's the place that God is bringing you. Are you okay with that? Can you receive more grace from God and grace upon grace? That's all you do. Then you can do this. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are better to us than we deserve. All we deserve is condemnation and destruction. And you have worked in us so that we depend upon you. And all we can say is thank you. And we, we're aware that you're better to us than we deserve. And you do this over and over and over again. And so we want to thank you. Thank you for determining to bless. And we also pray about being a bond slave. We even need your grace to go there. So please continue to bless and make us men and women who are completely submitted to what you want. Because your will is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we say, behold your bond slaves. Be it done to us according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.